Imagine if you had three wishes, three hopes, three dreams, and they could all come true. It's fun to think about, isn't it? Having our own personal genie in the bottle, the most powerful being in the universe at our command and working for us. Imagine that. What would you use him for? Like Disney's Aladdin, would you use him to better your relationship status, change your relationship status, get the guy or girl of your dreams, right? Then you would have love. Or maybe you'd use the, the genie to make you the world's first trillionaire. Then you'd have security, you'd have comfort. What would you do with all of that money? You know, unfortunately, some Christians think God is the same as that genie. God is our employee, although somehow he is the most powerful being of the universe, yet he exists in order to fulfill each one of our wishes. That's then what prayer boils down to. The whole act of prayer, and then really our relationship with God, becomes a mission of self-glorification. But this is far from the biblical picture of prayer, far from the biblical picture of God who exists, um, who exists in order that we would bring Him glory. According to the Bible, God created the church to bring glory to Him. And so even in prayer, talking to God, asking things of Him, even that is to move towards glorifying this omnipotent, sovereign God who alone has all dominion. This is what we see in this morning's passage from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. If you're using the Pew Bibles there, the Black Bibles in front of you, you can find that on page 977. I invite you to turn there with me now. The fact that prayer ought to bring glory to God and not ourselves ought to make us check our prayers, shouldn't it? And it ought to make us check our attitudes in our prayers. From today's passage, Paul the Apostle is our example for how to make our prayers God-exalting and Christ-centered. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. I'll go ahead and read that right now. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The structure of the passage is pretty simple. Verses 14 to 19 contain two prayer requests with 19 being the summary request. And then verses 20 to 21 show us the end to which Paul prays. 
what's the whole big reason for why Paul, Paul prays these two particular prayers? And he says there that it is not the glory of man, but indeed the glory of God. First, I want to emphasize the end to which Paul prays that is the glory of God. Look there again at 20 to 21. He says, you see that he prays there in 14 to 19, and then it rises to the climax of this doxology or this declaration of praise. Now to him, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, that of course is God's power, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Now note, it's not only just our generation. He says, for all time, it's throughout all generations, forever and ever. So again, here we got we to check our prayers and our attitudes in our prayers. I mean, what are the types of things that on our knees we pray to God and ask God for? Functionally, I think if we were to give account for our prayers, we'd end up saying now to Jeremy, who God works for. According to God's power, may he bring glory to me right here and right now. And of course, given God is the all-eternal God, perhaps I say, as if I were to say, God who is eternal, all of his power throughout all generations that he exists, may he exist to exalt Jeremy forever and ever. So practically, I mean, what does this look like? It like? It looks like me being so self-focused on the here and the now and the physical, the temporal, the stuff of the earth. And oftentimes, sadly, maybe to the exclusion of the things spiritual and the things eternal, the things here that God himself is concerned about. So sadly, I think I would have to say, I would have to confess that throughout my own Christian life, there were times when my own goal here was the exaltation of myself as opposed to the exaltation of God the glory of God as displayed through my life. But it's so obvious here that Paul is not going to God as if God is the genie in the lamp that exists for his glory as if God seeks to idolize Paul. But here, Paul exists for God's glory. And you see this in his attitude as he approaches God. You see there, there in verse 14, his, his uh, very physical demeanor there, he bows his knee. So there, are many, there are many different types of ways that one can pray in terms of posture. In the Old Testament, it was pretty common to stand and pray. One could also be prostrate, falling on their face and declaring the praises of God. But here, Paul, in recognition that God is all sovereign, he, he exercises all dominion, he bows his knee and his head. We get the idea of an acknowledgement that God is sovereign. <coughs> And then furthermore, look how the Father here is described. He is the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So here we get this idea of heaven and the families or the groupings in heaven and then the groupings on earth. So let's say the groupings of angels that we've mentioned in the past. And then every single family, whether they be Gentile or Jew, uh, all of these things find their name according to God's sovereignty. Now, D.A. Carson points out that this could also mean that God is the father of all people, all of his people, whether they be on earth or whether they be those in heaven already. Uh, regardless, what is clear is that God is the one doing the naming. God is the one who is over all of them. 
So it is not that Paul goes to his genie and seeks that the genie help him accomplish whatever he wants to do. It's not getting more money so that he can escape trial and feel more comfortable. After all, Paul is in jail, right? It's not getting into a relationship so he can find his ultimate identity in what he wants. It's not getting out of suffering so he can go on and live the way that he determines is best. But here, Paul, in full recognition that he has been created and saved by a sovereign God, that he exists for God's glory, all the glory goes to him, even in his prayers, asking God that that he would move accordingly, according to his glory, according to God's will, according to God's purposes, and according, of course, to God's big picture. These types of prayers require trust, don't they? To pray that God's glory would be done no matter what in our particular lives and in our particular situations. It requires a lot of trust, I think. We have to have absolute trust that God has indeed our best interest in mind. In your situation right now, no matter what struggle you may be going through, God has your best interest in mind. If we are going to pray that God, you be glorified in any particular way you choose to through my life. That's absolute trust. Not only that, though, we have to value what God values, don't we? In order to trade in our own selfish loves that oftentimes get worked out in our prayers, we have to trade in those selfish loves for God's love. But, you know, thank God Paul here is our example. Paul had his trust in this God. And he indeed valued what God valued. I mean, you realize here that God is praying to the Father? The Father? I mean, with all this regal language of sovereign authority or God naming and Paul bowing before him, this is still a very intimate picture of one of God's children going to the Father and then doing so on behalf of his fellow brothers and sisters. I've used this illustration in the past, and in fact, um, I got it from somebody else. John Calvin, he speaks about praying. You know, he says, look, what Paul is doing here is he's doing what any child would do. And if he sees his fellow children perhaps in danger, or perhaps thinking that maybe God will not hold him fast, so one child brings the, the, the other children before their father, saying, look, Father, help these people. That, that's what Paul's doing here. He has absolute trust, and so valuing what God values, he brings his brothers and sisters before God, his father. You know, the position and term of father uh, in the ancient world carried with it the idea that this father ruled the family, but he also protected the family, and then he dispensed blessings to the family with the family's best interest in mind. So everything the father does, of course he has the family's best interest in mind. It's hard for us to fathom that given that uh, we ourselves are fathers or mothers or guardians or babysitters or whatever, and oftentimes we don't have the family's best interest in mind. But Paul, he gets this, because he knows the father possesses true and inexhaustible riches, given that he knows that the father intends to give of his riches, so he prays there in verse 16, according to the riches of God's glory. So clearly Paul values something that God values and he's praying according to what God values. 
And what is what are these riches there? In, in chapter 1, verse 18, you don't have to turn there. You can if you want to. But there, Christians already share in the riches of God's glory. In chapter 2, verse 4, right? It says that salvation through Christ comes to sinners because God is rich in mercy. And then in 2.7, future salvation is secured as God intends to show us the immeasurable riches of His grace in Christ. So you see where this prayer is coming out of? What, what grounds Paul's prayer here is out of the trust that God has moved in our best interest in the past, riches in Christ. This prayer comes out of trust that God will shower on us the riches in the future in Christ Jesus. So naturally, seeing all that has been done in Christ, Paul prays, again, knowing this riches that has come out of eternity past, knows that he, the riches in Christ is going to go into eternity future. He prays that the riches of Christ will be made known to them now. Paul prays that the sovereign God would dispense more riches. So we've got to check ourselves. Okay, well, What is it that I value? What is it that you are praying for right now to get out of? Do you value the things that God himself values? I mean, do you even count those things riches of God's grace? Or actually, do you seek to run away from God's riches of his glorious grace? And in so doing, you really seek to get out of the trial that God has you in for a particular reason. That's really escaping God's grace in the middle of what he has you in. But thank God, you see there, that this prayer request, it presumes the fact that just as God's riches are inexhaustible, unfathomable, so his generosity matches his inexhaustible riches. So we can think of, of let's say, Philippians 4.19. It says that God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So there, right, right, the, the generosity matches the inexhaustible wealth. Generosity matches the inexhaustible wealth. So do we even value what God values? Because whatever he gives, that is what brings him most glory. Whatever it is that he's going to give, whatever it is that Paul wants the people to understand and to have, it's those things that bring God the most glory. It's those things then that we ought to live for and pray for in the midst of whatever it is that we're going through. You know, if, if you aren't convinced that God wants to give you and do through you the best thing possible in his understanding, imagine what kind of prayer life that would be if you were unconvinced that God has your best in mind. Then you'd spend a whole lot of time trying to convince God that you really know what's best, wouldn't you? I mean, it's a bit like, uh, you know, imagine babysitting a child and the child continually asks you for the Halloween candy that they got yesterday. Continually, you know, on the ride home, can I please have another nerd? Can I please have another nerd? Or whatever it is, you know, it, oftentimes, you know, parents and babysitters, we have to remind the child, look, you've got to trust me here. I understand how delicious candy is, and I want you to understand how delicious that candy is. In, in, in fact, I plan to give you all of that candy that you have just in the right timing. But, you know, in our prayers, sometimes we are like that three-year-old who just wants to have it all right now. 
And so we kind of throw like this hissy fit just to get that good thing. But yet we don't trust in God's timing and we doubt the fact that God really does have our best in mind. He really does want us to have that experience. He really does want us to taste all of that goodness. But in his own timing. What a disappointment your prayer life would be, wouldn't it? If your genie was always going rogue on you. Your genie insists on bringing you other things when you have your treasures set on something else. Wouldn't you want to trade in your genie? Go get a new one? Put the other one away? In order that you would have a genie that would finally work to help you. And I know from personal experience that if you really do believe that God exists for your glory, eventually you will come face to face with the fact that God does not idolize you. And you will, in fact, set down prayer. And you will, in fact, no longer live for the glory of God. Friends, looking at this prayer, I hope you are helped to know that God has your best interest in mind in Christ. That's what is of lasting and eternal value. God's glory through you in Christ. Might not always be the way that you expected it to be or work out, but yet he has your best interest in mind. Let's turn now and look at Paul's actual prayer request there. Let's look at prayer request number one. The glory of God in strengthened hearts. The glory of God in strengthened hearts. Look there in verse 16. Paul prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So the prayer begins where Paul asks God to strengthen our inner beings. This is the sum of the request in verses 16 and 17. But what exactly does that mean? Strengthen our hearts or strengthen our inner beings uh, you know, some have the, te- the temptation to over-spiritualize or even psychologize the idea of the inner being. Uh, but there is really no need to do that. Paul uses this inner being or inner man in 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul says that the outer man is wasting away, that is his flesh, but the inner man is being renewed. So that is the internal of man, the, the seat of man with all of his uh, rationale, his emotions, his heart really. The heart, filled with the Spirit, indwelt by the Spirit, is being renewed day by day. That is the inner man. Uh, But even in verse 17, you see that there is this parallel. Uh, You see what he's doing. Paul is drawing parallels as he explains what is being strengthened, right? Strengthened in your inner being. And then it's parallel with what comes next. That Christ may dwell in your heart. So the second is a further explanation of the first Christ dwelling in our hearts is what it means to be strengthened in your inner being. But but this strengthening in the inner being too, we might end up saying, okay, what he's saying is that we ought to have courage uh, courage to face life. That God empowers us to do whatever we as sovereign beings want to do. In other words, live for our glory. But that is not Paul's idea here. Again, the parallelism helps us, right? This is Christ dwell, Christ dwelling in our hearts. 
This here is Christ's ongoing and permanent indwelling as opposed to us when we first get saved. Now, certainly Jesus wants to give us courage to face life situations. But God's intention is not to empower in order that we might glorify ourselves as if we were God. But he empowers us for our good to glorify him in the way that Christ wants us to live. So a common illustration uh, that different theologians use uh, gets this point across. So think about home renovation. Right, if you ever want to buy one day a place of your own, let's say a condo or a home, right? Well, you go in, maybe buy a fixer-upper. And when you move in, you work on it, perhaps one room at a time, perhaps one problem at a time. And eventually you get the house in working condition and you start putting your own touches on it based on your own design. And then the house comes to, to show your character, and your fingerprints are all over it, right? And so people recognize this. You know, when you have people come over, uh, we kind of bought a fixer-upper, and people, some of our other friends came over, and we had rented for, uh, you know, quite some time before that. And our friends finally said, oh, it's so great to see the way that you yourself would decorate the home. Because the decorations, they come to reveal at least a little bit, uh, or the status of the home comes to reveal at least a little bit the person living in it. Unfortunately for me, what that means is a fair bit of chaos. Clothes are all over the place. Um, but, you know, when God moves into the house, eventually when the Spirit dwells in us, He starts renovating things one room at a time, and we begin to show His characteristics. And so when other people look at your life, they begin to say, well, you know what? And they know you're a Christian. They say, well, you know what, God? I really like what you're doing here. This is a really good work, and we ourselves start to reveal God's characteristics as we bear his fingerprints upon us. This is what happens when God indwells us or quite Christ dwells in our hearts. We are becoming a house fit for God. So by the Spirit's power, God sets about making us holy as he is holy. We start loving the things that he loves. We start forgiving the ways in which he has forgiven us. And we come to bear the characteristics of our Savior. So people come to say, I love what God is doing in you. We come to reflect more of Christ. That's what it means for Christ to dwell in our hearts. You know, as we seek to apply this to our own lives, we've got to examine our prayer life, of course, or our attitudes. There is a tendency in us to simply get out of our problems or pray that God would remove certain situations. Now, I'm not saying that that's never bad. Indeed, Paul did the very same things with a thorn in his flesh. He prayed without doubt a few times that Christ would remove this thing. But oftentimes, I think we find ourselves doing this to the exclusion of Christ's glory being made known in us. We would rather be free from that situation or freed from the situation as opposed to being matured in Christ in the situation. But here Paul focuses on Christian maturity. And there is no mention of situation, is there? Paul himself was in prison when he was writing these things. There's no mention of him being in prison. But there is mention, and he's praying it for himself as well, we can logically conclude, that he without doubt would mature and come to display God's glory in himself. 
So for our own temptations and our own prayer life, let's just say we are tempted to get out of our financial situation. You know, maybe we are strapped for cash, and so we trust in the world's riches, and so therefore we pray for more of, of the world's riches. We pray for comfort, we pray for less stress, we pray for better jobs. Now again, those things are not in and of themselves bad. But friends, in your midst of the lack of those riches, when you trust in Jesus as a Christian, don't you tell your family and friends that riches in Jesus are better, far more valuable than earthly riches? That's Christian maturity. Christ himself had nowhere to lay his head. He was a poor person, but yet he was rich, obviously, in understanding the love of God for him. Let's talk about, uh, let's say, you, you putting your trust in your earthly health and you want to get out of sickness. You want to get out of your death sentence that we all indeed face. So we pray for greater health. Again, it's good to pray for greater health. We pray for greater health. We pray that people would be healed. But in the midst of failing health, don't we tell others, when we trust in Jesus, that trusting in our life in Christ is far more valuable than this temporary life? That's Christian maturity. We trust in the eternal or understand the temporary in light of the eternal. Let's say you are wanting to change your relationship status. Let's say you, you are wanting that guy or girl of your dreams. Or let's say you're wanting for your wayward child to come back. Or you're wanting for a child, period. And so you pray for them. Sometimes you really feel like you have nothing in common with your fellow Christians. And so you know that relationship is is going wrong. Maybe your spouse right next to you. You know that there is a world of difference. You know that you. Pr it seems as if in the moment you have nothing in common with the person laying right beside you except for the blood of Jesus. Friends, in those circumstances where our own sin is dividing us or there are opportunities for sin to divide us or misunderstandings or miscommunications or relationship explosions, don't we as Christians... Show the world that Christ is so much better, that there is power in the gospel. When we trust in Christ's forgiveness, when we say, yeah, I know we're sinners. I know we're going to have issues, but I want Christ to dwell in our hearts. And I want everybody around us to know that despite all these differences, we want to make Christ known. We want to display Jesus' glory to everyone, to the very ends of the earth. And so I can be free. Yeah, I have disagreements with him. Of course I do. But man, does the gospel strengthen us and bind us together and bring reconciliation again and again and again. Whatever the issue, trusting Christ in the midst of the struggle and then displaying his glory and his power and grace, his mercy and his love is what it means to have your inner man, your heart strengthened by the power of the Spirit. This is what the Spirit does, doesn't it? Isn't it? That the Spirit works in us to make us more like Christ. So we display the radiance of His glory in all of our lives. I pray that we together as a church would see every temptation, every single struggle we have, or every struggle we know that our fellow church member is in is a crucial moment for us to fight and pray to see them desiring to mature in Christ. That's prayer request number one. The glory of God in strengthened hearts.
The second prayer request he brings to God is the glory of God in strengthened minds. The glory of God in strengthened minds. Look in the middle of 17, he continues his prayer. He says, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the second petition, that they have strength to comprehend and know the love of Christ. So first strengthen hearts, and then here we see strengthen minds to know and experience Christ's love for them. It's so fitting and encouraging, I think, to, to see that the experience and knowledge of God's love for us undergirds growing in Christian maturity. Because oftentimes what we think about Christian maturity is we think, okay, you know, I got to go and do these things. I got to go and uh, seek reconciliation again. I got to go and trust in Jesus again. I got to stay away from worldly wealth or trusting in that and trust in Jesus again. And we forget that the Spirit Himself is working us. And then so the task of growing in Christian maturity just becomes dull or dry or something we flex our wills towards. But here it's not that. He says, look, you guys ought to be growing. In Christian maturity, that's what it means, the fullness of God, that's Christian maturity. He says, you guys ought to be growing in Christian maturity. But, but he says, look, I want this thing to undergird your efforts in Christian maturity. I want you to know, again, God's deep love for you. So we can't separate sanctification or growing in holiness apart from God's great love for us. This is such a telling prayer request and it speaks volumes of the Christian God, of the only God, the God of the Bible. Yeah, I mean, you recognize here that, that you know, when, when, when pagans pray, let's say, uh, they're praying in order to pacify God, because you know what? You never know if God's going to fly off the handle in all of his wrath. He's going to come down and destroy us. There's no security there. There's no assurance there. And there is no love there in any real meaningful sense. But here, Paul prays, that he wants you to know God's great love for you if you are a Christian. And let that drive and compel you towards Christian maturity. When we are saved, part of being saved is being called into a relationship of love. Now some of you macho guys are thinking like, is this what I signed up for? But it is. And Paul understands this. You know, unfortunately, this relationship of love your relationship with God, the relationship of love, does not get mentioned by Christians too often when you think of mature Christian faith, right? I mean, if you think of mature Christian faith, what are the things typically that people tend to list? You get going to church regularly, praying regularly, I read the Bible regularly, I don't watch pornography, I don't gossip, I maybe dress modestly, I gotta do family worship, I gotta leave my wife, I gotta take her out on date nights and pursue her, which are all good things and indeed fall under Christian maturity. But where is growing and experiencing God's love for me? It's on Paul's list that Christ would dwell in you, bringing you to maturity, and that you would know that you are beloved of God. I have a friend who greets his, the church that he preaches to, or even when he's going to a, a, a church that isn't his own to preach, he always says, good morning, beloved of God. And I always thought that was a little weird. You know, the preachers always have their strange introductions, and I thought this was one of them. 
But here, I knew it was biblical because Christians are beloved of God, but here it gave me new appreciation that when someone says beloved of God, he is reminding them that they are indeed loved of God, deeply loved of God. What a God we worship who not only loves us but calls us to know and experience more and more and more of God's great love for us. This is why he mentions those terms there in verse 18, which most likely refer to God's love. We are invited to know the breadth of God's love, the length of God's love, the height of God's love, and then the depth of God's love. I mean, really, it is inexhaustible. Going in every way, coming from every which way, it is beyond comprehension in that knowledge of it and experience of it can never be exhausted. This is what he means when he says that love surpasses knowledge. It's not a jab at knowledge. I mean, knowledge is clearly important. He's praying for their knowledge. In chapter 1, too, he prays for uh, knowledge there. So knowledge is crucial. But here he, he means to say that God's love surpasses knowledge in that it can never be fully known. Never be fully known. Now, to some of you guys, that might discourage you. You might think of the task of loving God as sort of like, for some strange reason, this dark tunnel where you just got to slavishly discover God's love for you and there isn't light until the very end of the tunnel. And so the process of growing in your love for you is really just dry and drab. But that's not the way that Paul imagines it. Paul imagines it like this. He imagines it like God is taking you up to the most beautiful mountain peak you can ever imagine. And with every step of the way, every switchback, God lays beautiful things for you to behold. God himself has designed the path. God himself has designed the vistas that you are to take in and to marvel at and what lies ahead of you is greater and greater joy. And every single way, every single step of the way, you know without doubt truly that God loves you. So even though you cannot know it exhaustively, so you cannot fully know God's love, it doesn't mean that we cannot know God's love truly. No, every single step of the way, we can know God's love truly. And it is inexhaustible. So you see how that ought to encourage us. We get the opportunity to climb into the depths of God's love, the, the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of God's love to discover all the great and marvelous things. You know, recently, um, a couple weeks ago, we went on a family vacation. We went to Idlewild. At one point in time, we went hiking, and uh, you know, we went to go and visit the nature center. And there, the task was, or the, the person who worked there gave us the task that if we go out and collect acorns and bring back a bag of them, uh, then they get, then they give us a free bag of rocks, right? They're the rocks, uh, and most of us, right? We're like, okay, it's not really a big deal, but these rocks are beautiful. I mean, if you just, if you can imagine, if you ever seen these beautifully colored rocks uh, made of all sorts of stuff? I don't know what it's made of. Um, you know, some are, are beautiful blues and pretty purples and all these types of things, and uh, some have little. It seems like little gold flecks in them. It's like God lays out all of these rocks for us to enjoy. And we get to dive into all of it. And all those little rocks are little 
evidences of God's love for us, where we pick up and marvel at Him. And at different times in our Christian life, we gather some rocks, and because we, we, we like the, the view of those ones and how pretty they are. And at different times in your life, you might come to appreciate different colored rocks. This is the treasury of God's riches that He lets us dive into. Evidences of His great love for us. I mean, you realize that here in Ephesians, everything that's come before, right, in chapter 1, you see there that every member of the Trinity is involved in our salvation. The Father predestines us for adoption there in verse in chapter 1, verse 5, if you see there. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. But not only that, right, you've got the Father working for our salvation, you've got the Son working for our salvation. In Jesus, that is in verse 7, we have redemption through His blood. And then you've got the Spirit who works as a, who is a down payment of our inheritance. There in verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of final salvation, right? Every member of the Trinity is involved in our salvation. That's evidence of God's love. In chapter 2, he moves on and then he, says, he speaks about God's sovereign grace to save. Even though we were so far down in our sinfulness and depravity, under the judgment of God, being children of wrath, that is, that we were to inherit God's wrath in 2 verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But yet, his sovereign grace finds us in his love. When we were dead, God made us alive. When we were under a death sentence, God liberated us by His sovereign grace. It goes all the way down. His love goes all the way down into the depths of the dungeon of depravity and makes us alive. And then He seats us with Him there in 284. By grace you have been saved. That's God's love for us there. So you see, everything's leading up to this prayer request as Paul transitions from this heavy theology who God is, what he has done in history. And then Paul, in this moment here, in chapter 3, 14 and 21, he's praying. It's all leading up to this practical prayer, at least in this transition. That's what's going on. But still, you know, let's lead up to this. In chapter 3, God's grace doesn't only reach the heights after it's come up from the depths. It goes out to the very edges, right? As God sort of dumps this heavenly blessings upon us and it comes down and then out to the edges. He brings reconciliation between sinners and himself and then sinners with each other. And why is it? Why is it that we get the salvation there in verse two, chapter 2, verse 4? It's all because of the great love with which he loved us. It's amazing that here all of this stuff, all of the contents here are sort of driving forward like this great snowball and he says... What I want you to understand is love for you. He could have chose so many different words to, to help them understand what God has done for them from eternity past into eternity future, what he's going to do right now, and he chooses his love to characterize this. This is why Paul bursts out in personal proclamation in Galatians 2.20. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's personal. So Christian, is growing in knowing and experiencing God's love for you on your to-do list? 
is growing in knowing and experiencing God's love for you on your to-do list. We could have our to-do list, you know. We wake up, we do our devotions, ideally. Maybe we want to pray. Maybe we even want to fast to learn dependence upon Him. Uh, Maybe we want to take out time to gather together in church to worship Him. But if all of that does not fall underneath knowing and experiencing God's love for you, why exactly are we doing this? But isn't it wonderful that he gives us these opportunities to do all these things in order to know and then to experience? So is that something you pray for? Do you say, God, I pray that you would help me know your love for me? Is that your aim for yourself as a Christian? Now, I realize, again, that some of us here might be a little bit confused about how to grow in knowledge that God loves you. I mean, how exactly do we do that? Well, for starters, it requires receiving God's word for you. It requires receiving God's word for you. When you come to church, when you come to hear the word preached, we should come with the attitude saying to God, show me again, God, your great love for me. When we are needy or downtrodden or skeptical or doubting, in the experience of whatever it is that you're experiencing, whether you are wrestling with some ugly, ugly sin that you cannot believe you are wrestling with. If you are hard-hearted and you don't particularly care this very morning about God's love for you, or maybe you are so confident in the massive river of God's love for you, this should be our prayer. Lord, show me again your love for me. The wonderful thing is, like the perfect father he is, or like the perfect husband uh, that he is, imagine his response. Imagine his response if, let's say, you are experiencing doubt right now. Let's say you're experiencing your own neediness, your own insecurity. You know that your father will never say, like sometimes we do with our friends or loved ones, don't you get it, you idiot? I love you. He'll never say that. But yet he will seek to affirm his great love for you through the word and in the power of the spirit. Let's say in your hard heartedness, will not God rebuke and discipline you, but always in a way that is restorative and loving, never abusive, always restorative and loving. Let's say your confidence, would he not want to celebrate with you his own great love for you? Like the perfect father does if he's giving gifts to his children or gifts to his wife as they enjoy and relish in the gift and more importantly the giver so what is celebrated is the giver's love or the love that's experienced between the two so i wonder friends do you have a prayerful attitude for yourself when it comes to hearing the word of god are you tempted to doubt god's love for you and so you desperately pray that God would change your situation? Or do you, like Paul, want to say, look, I know, God, we are in this situation, but Lord, show me your love again. Do you you have a prayerful attitude for others as you come to church? Do you pray to God, show them again? I know what they're going through. I know that they're wrestling with that ugly sin. I know they're wrestling with some sort of guilt. I know they're wrestling with ill health and are so incredibly fearful of death. Do you pray for them? Show them, Lord, one more time your great love for them. 
there's a corporate nature to this prayer. Did you notice that? You see how they're supposed to grow in the knowledge of God there together with all the saints? That's all the others whom God has died for, which of course includes the specific members of their own local church. Church members, are you praying for your fellow church members? You know, if you open up there in your bulletin, you see there the church covenant that's uh, provided. And we're going to meditate on that during the Lord, Lord's Supper there. But it speaks about praying for others. The third, the fourth we will line, it says there, we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor omit the great duty of prayer, both for ourselves and for others. And again, it isn't just that, that they would be removed from whatever situation they're in, but that God would make his, his self known, that God would affirm his own great love for them. This is what's required according to the church covenant. It's what's required according to God's word, according to what God himself commands. This is praying a prayer, not only for the physical and temporal concerns, I say this often, but their spiritual and eternal concerns as well. In fact, it is praying the physical in light of the spiritual, the temporal in light of the eternal, but to do this well. I mean, don't we have to be knowledgeable about the people that we're sitting around? And then don't we have to be thoughtful about how we can pray for our fellow members with God's glory in mind that they would know the love of Christ more in whatever particular situation they're in? So let's say if we oftentimes find ourselves using God as a genie for us to get out of suffering, you know, the most important thing, according to the word, is not that we get out of suffering. Though it's fine to pray for that, it's good to pray for that, the most important thing there is that we learn to boast in our weakness so God's grace and power are proven once again to be sufficient, isn't it? According to 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And we can pray that the sufferer would know the love of God as God has pledged his all-sufficient and inexhaustible love for that particular sufferer, that God will not abandon them, but that no one can snatch them out of his hand. And so they would know that he will hold me fast and he will hold them fast. Let's say you're praying to get out of your ill health. You know, the most important thing is to not live forever in this world. But that in all things, Christ would be exalted in our bodies, Paul says, whether by life or by death, according to Philippians 1.20. And then we can go on to pray that that person, if they are facing ill health or persecution or death, that they would know the love of God in that it is as certain as God raised Jesus from the dead, so Jesus will raise the Christian from the dead. And so he will come in love again. Friends, if you are a member of the church, let me encourage you to pick up the church directory. We have copies in the office, the church directory here. And to begin praying for your fellow church members that they too would know the inexhaustible love of God for them. Make it your aim to pray for a page a day. So by a page here, what I do is pray through one half of the page. As you guys get the directories right here, I consider that one page. Uh, so you can pray for a page a day. And just pray through the people throughout the whole entire year. And what you read in Scripture and do your devotions in, you can pray the exact same things for a fellow who just lost her daughter. 
to cancer. You can pray for Mikkel as he transitions to a new school over in the UK. There that he would find a church and that he would know God's great love for him as he's bouncing around and is struggling to find housing as far as I know. Struggling to find housing, yet he would know that he is a stranger and an alien, but yet he has a house in heaven. You can pray for Robert Brown. Here as he's getting ready to graduate, thinking about uh, what kind of career path he should take, and yet we can lift him up to God in recognition that ultimately what is on God's mind is Christian maturity. You can pray for Gracie. You can pray for Henry. You can pray for Ida in the various health issues that they experience, the very real health issues that they experience, that we can pray that they would know God's love for them, that God will never leave us nor forsake us. Again, if this is not your practice, let me encourage you to make it your practice. The membership directory in the office right after service, go ahead and grab that. That would be a great encouragement for us to pray for one another in this way. So corporate prayer is one way that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's amazing there that what is required here to grasp this ongoing love of God is that we ought to be rooted and grounded in love, as it says there in 17. It's interesting, right? In order to know God's love, we need to be rooted and grounded in this love. That is, again, the love of the gospel. That though we have rebelled against God and rejected His rule, even though we had earned for ourselves a just condemnation, even though God in His righteousness had every right to punish us, having rebelled against God and set up our own thrones, yet, all because of His love, He sends His Son to condescend to take on flesh, to live a life that we could not live in righteousness, and to die the death that we deserved as He bore our wrath, the wrath of God that we deserved on His own self. He was our substitute. And so when we are grounded in this gospel, chapter 1 of Ephesians, chapter 2 of Ephesians, and then the gospel that brings us together, even though we're of different cultures and of different generations, when we are grounded in that gospel, then we can know again and again and again that great love for us. The breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Well, to conclude, those are the two main prayer requests there. Strengthen hearts in which Christ dwells. Strengthen minds in which they know Christ's love for them. It's not us approaching prayers of God as a genie in, a, in, a, in the bottle who exists to idolize us, but it is we who exist to live for the praise of God's glory. You, you notice how Christ-centered this prayer is? In Paul's mind, there is nothing outside of this Jesus. There is nothing worth living for or dying for that is outside of this Christ Jesus. And so he prays that the head of the church would be made manifest in the body of the church. And so when outsiders look at the church who is grounded in love and growing in their knowledge of love, they see the exaltation of Christ. That Christ would be made known and that we together, First Baptist Church and every other church that preaches and believes the gospel would be growing into the fullness of God that is Christian maturity. 
That's the grand aim of Christian maturity, that our hearts and minds would be strengthened in Christ, to be filled up to all the fullness of God. You know, it is true that we as the church already experience the fullness of God, according to Ephesians chapter 123. But there's this sense that the fullness hasn't arrived yet. We experience it now, but not fully. And so it is to that end that the church is to pray. Look at verses 20 and 21 once again. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. According to the power at work within us, that is the Spirit's power, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Friends, do your prayer requests seem to never reach above the earthly? Do they never seem to go beyond the temporal? That's a reflection that we actually do not believe that God is able to do more abundantly than all we ask or think, is it? Isn't it awesome that here we are invited to bring huge, massive, life-changing, earth-shattering prayers to God in order that God would be glorified and that we would know more and more of His great love for us. So friends, in relation to praying for ourselves or praying for our next-door neighbors, let's remember that God can do the unimaginable in Christ for his glory as he intends to do through his people. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that just as your riches are inexhaustible, so so your generosity matches that out of the wealth of glory you have, so you give out of the glory you possess. Father, we pray that our prayers would indeed reflect that reality, that you are a good and loving God, that you are so rich in mercy and grace and love towards us who don't deserve any of it. And so, Lord, we ask you right now that you would make your great love known to us as we receive the word of God, as we sing the word of God, and even as we hear in the Lord's Supper, so-called see the word of God of truths lived out here as Jesus Christ gave up himself and as he died on the cross for sins, as he broke his very own body. Lord, we recognize that we as sinners were worthy of your condemnation, but your great love and grace and mercy has saved us. Lord, we pray that these truths would never be old, but Lord, our new song, continually sung, would be in the work that has already been accomplished and the work that you are doing in us right now to mature us, to bring us to unity and maturity in Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen. We turn now to celebrate the Lord's Supper just as Christ commanded his church through the breaking of and eating of bread and the pouring and drinking of the fruit of the vine. We are to remember and recognize that Christ bore the wrath of God that we rightly deserved. Christ intended this Lord's Supper to be celebrated by local churches of baptized believers who have placed their faith in the death, the resurrection, and the return of Jesus. So if you are visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a believer, you can simply let the bread and the juice pass you by. We're glad you can observe us take the Lord's Supper. And if you are visiting with us and you are a baptized believer and a member in good standing of another evangelical church, we invite you to take the Lord's Supper with us. 
And we have to remember that as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, we have to keep in mind Paul the Apostle's warning here in 1 Corinthians 11. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So if you have your church covenant with you, you can pull that out and use that as an aid to your reflection and use this time as a silent confession of sins and then eventually... Uh, we will sing Behold the Lamb of God as the elements are passed forward.
Christian, what is before us here in the Lord's Supper is a symbol of the broken body of Jesus and His spilled blood. And where we ought to be encouraged is that we can have this forgiveness again, ongoing and abiding forgiveness when we repent and believe, when we turn from our sins and believe on Christ. So friends, if you know that there is some sin that you are clinging to as a Christian and you have not repented of it, be reminded here that your forgiveness has been won fully and freely by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he commands you to turn from your sins and believe. If, you visit, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian, what you see here reminds, should remind you, as we've already preached on, that this gospel of grace is free by its nature. It is by grace that people are saved. And so these things that represent the gospel of Jesus Christ should call you to turn from your sins freely and to embrace this forgiveness that, is, that can be won when those who believe in Jesus Christ. Again, in taking the Lord's Supper, salvation is not imparted. It cannot be earned. But once again, this is a symbol of God's grace to us. Let's pray together. Almighty and most merciful Father, we confess we have strayed from you like lost sheep. We have followed too much the desires of our hearts and have sinned against you. But we know too that you are a merciful God and a loving God. So we pray that you would forgive us of the things we have done and forgive us for the things we have left undone. Restore us, we pray, according to your promises given in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray that you would grant us, most loving Father, for Christ's namesake, that we may hereafter live a godly life by the power of the Spirit, to the glory of your holy name. Amen.